You're listening to audio from Calvary Baptist Church of Port Austin. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about us, please visit cbcportaustin.org. What in the world is God doing in the world? That's the question I want to start with today. What is God doing in the world? It's a question that really is one of the most important questions we can ask or think about. Um, It's a question that I'm often trying to put before you and trying to answer from the word. What is God doing? Um, Because if you know the answer to that question, um, you know the answer to so many other questions. If you know God's ultimate purpose in this world, then you also know the purpose of marriage, raising children, going to work, being involved in a local church, and so much more. And so today, as we start this new series on a church, um, we are eventually going to get into what is a church and and what is a church called to do and how is a church supposed to be structured and what are elders and what are deacons and what about baptism and the Lord's Supper. I want to answer those questions and I want to get into those specifics. But before doing that, I want to give you the why behind it all. I want us to wrestle with the question, what is God doing in the world? And I have three reasons for this. First of all, because what God is doing in the world is inextricably linked to what he's doing in the church. He doesn't have dual purposes. And so the church today is God's plan A and there is no plan B. And so we need to know what is God up to? What is his mission? What is he uh, um, attempting to accomplish? And I shouldn't say attempting because he will accomplish it. But we need to know what God is doing in the world before we'll ever know what he's doing in the church. And secondly, I want to wrestle with what God is doing in the world, because if what we're doing as a church is not in line with what he's doing in the world, then we might as well just pack up and go home, right? Like what's the point of being here if we're not in line with God's mission? I don't care how big our crowd is, how much money's in our bank, how many missions um, we're trying to support. If we're not in line with God's ultimate mission, then what are we doing? We might as well sleep in, right? And some of you are like, yeah, I thought about it today, <laughs> right? <clears throat> but I want to know what God is doing. What is he attempting to accomplish? Again, going to accomplish. What does his word tell us that he is doing in the world so that we can rightly submit as a church to what he's wanting to do in our church? And lastly, I want to give you this big why, because as I often say, this will put some weight in your boat um, when we go off, sail off as a church to try to seek to accomplish what God has called us to do. This puts some weight in our boat. I told you the story once when I was in junior high or so. I used to love going four-wheeling um, with my friends up north, and we'd jump on them and race and play hide-and-go-seek in the woods and um, sometimes go way too fast in the snow. And one time I smashed into a tree, and that's another story for another time. But one time um, we all got up, and there was a few extra of us there, and we got there to the quads, and, and there was, they all jumped on them before me, and there was just one little mini one left for, like, kids. And I'm like, ah, oh, fine, I'll ride that one today, no problem. And we were kind of cruising through the woods, having fun. And, and I was riding through the woods, and I came across this really steep spot with this slight kind of sideways incline. And all of a sudden, because there was no weight in my four-wheeler, it just started to roll. And it rolled right over me, and I rolled down the hill. It was a little four-wheeler, so it didn't hurt me. But I looked around, and of course, all my friends were gone. You know, they took off. Um, and and I'm, I'm looking around, I'm in a big patch of poison ivy. And I was like, are you kidding me, right? And so, so I go back to the house in and, um, and shame, and my friend's mom actually had this Indian soap um, that supposedly healed poison ivy, and so I washed with it, and strangely, I've never had poison ivy. Um, and even that day, I didn't get poison ivy, so I, I think it was the Indian soap, all right? I, we got to figure out where she got that and get more of it, right? 
Um, Joey's like, yeah, please share, share with me where you got that. He struggles with poison ivy. Um, but anyways, I tell you that story to tell you this. All my friends rode the same path. We all had the same mission. We all had the same direction. We were all going in the same place. Um, they were able to make it, but I didn't because I didn't have any weight. And the first bump that came along spiraled me off. And I think what happens in a lot of well-meaning pastors and churches is, is they get you all fired up about what you're supposed to do. But they don't tell you why you're supposed to do it. And so you know what you're supposed to do. I'm supposed to go evangelize. But the first kind of bump in the road spirals you off the path and you just, you're looking around wondering what in the world happened. But if you've got the why, if you know what God is doing in the world and he's called us into this and, and we know that he's going to accomplish it and we just get to be part of it, like that puts some weight in your boat. So when the, when the storms come, um, you're kind of steady, right? You may rock a little bit, but you're steady and you're going and you, and you want to stay in doing what God has called us to do. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through the Bible and we're going to make some pit stops along the way and just ask the question over and over, what is God doing in the world in a, in a variety of different ways? And so first of all, let's look at creation and ask the question, why did God create the world? It's important to note as we start to look at this question that he didn't create the world out of any lack. Okay, he created out of abundance. Before creation, God existed as a triune being and there was perfect loving and fulfilling relationship between the members of the Godhead. And we need to know this um, because God is one in three, but we need to know this because there's people out there that say God created us because he was lonely and he wanted relationships. And that's just downright close to heresy. God doesn't need anything. He's, he's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. And so he created out of abundance, not out of lack or need. This love, this beauty, this joy, this abundance, this glory spilled out over onto the canvas of creation. And that's why creation happened. Um, I love how Mark Ward puts this. God created the world for the same reason a spring keeps bubbling out water. It's God's nature to overflow. The mutual love of the Trinity has a tendency to spill over. It isn't lack, but abundance that makes God, the spring, pour out his love on creatures he creates. There is something rather than nothing because it is the very nature of God to pour out his love on and display his wondrous glory to others. And so to put it really simply, why did God create the world? Simply put, to display his glory. Psalm 19.1 puts it this way, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Colossians 1.16 expands on this by saying, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. When you look at the vast size of the universe, it doesn't take long to figure out that it's, it's about something much bigger than us, right? It's about God. He made the universe with its billions of galaxies to give us a tiny glimpse of what he is like. Because this vast universe that people give their whole lives to um, is like a little marble that God can put in his pocket and walk around with. That's how great and awesome and powerful he is. And so he did this to display his glory. The purpose of sunsets and waterfalls and rainforests and animals and clouds and stars and planets is to display the glory of God, to show the beauty, the majesty, the wonder, and the magnificence of God. And you may think, is that somewhat egotistical, right? That he makes it all just to point to him, right? Like if, if we were all about us, we would be labeled as egotistical. But God is the only being 
who can make it about him because in doing so, that's the most loving thing he can do. What else would he point to for our fulfillment, for our satisfaction? There is no being greater. There is no thing greater. There is no beauty or majesty or glory greater than himself. And so by displaying his glory, he's sharing the most wonderful, awesome, marvelous thing in the world. And so it's unselfish and it's actually loving for him to, to take notice of us, to create us and to create this world, to, to give us a glimpse of who he is. But here's where things get really cool. Not only did God create all the things of this world to display his glory, he created you to display his glory. We see this in the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1:27. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All the animals and plants were patterned after their kind. But when he gets to humans, humans were uniquely patterned after the image and likeness of God. We were made to image God, to picture him, to resemble him, to be little mirrors that show the world what he is like. And it's noteworthy to, to, to say this, that God made Adam and he said, it's not good that Adam should be alone. And so there needed to be a man and a woman to display his glory. From the beginning, it was a community that was going to display his glory. And we know that that ultimately pointed to Christ and the church. That's why um, it wasn't good that man was alone. And if we continue in the story, humans are given this unique kingdom-like authority. They're told to have dominion. In other words, they're told to represent God's good rule and reign in this world. Um, and finally, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Why? So that the whole earth would be filled with little images of God that reflect his glory. From the very beginning, it was God's purpose to display his glory to the world. And so I, I really think we need to just pause here and you need to think about the fact that the God who made the universe with the moon and the stars and the sun and all these things to point us to him made you to point others to him. If that doesn't give you a purpose, then I don't know what will. You know the purpose for which all things exist, and so you know why you exist. Isaiah 43, 7 puts it this way, For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. So if we summarize this first point, why did God create the world? Simply put, to display his glory. Now, after creating all things, the Bible says that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But if you know the Bible, and if you look around today, and I made a comment about this, if you were alive at all in 2020, you know that something went wrong. <laughs> if it was very good in the beginning, what happened after that to, to get us to where we are today? And that brings us to the next pit stop, the fall. What went wrong? After creation, something pretty tragic happens. Rather than glorifying God, humans chose to glorify themselves. Romans 1 puts it this way, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And listen to this, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Because of this, sin entered. And there was a fracture in the cosmos. And man no longer lived in harmony with God or with his neighbor. There was no love for God. There was no love for neighbor. And all of us from that point, the Bible says, are born into this world as sinners separated from God. It's 
in our very nature. Instead of flourishing and living out God's design for our lives, we're broken by our sin. And as I often remark, we're like the shopping carts at Walmart. We're just bent in the wrong direction, right? Um, you can test four or five of them, and you're just always going to get one that's just bending off in the wrong direction. That's humans. We're, we're bent away from God. And we just, we're naturally, in our hearts, we don't love God. We don't seek God. We don't need God in our, in our minds, is what we think. And, and so we're bent in the wrong direction. And this also explains why there's evil today. Relational conflict, pain, Sickness, death, war, plagues, disease, cancer, all of things, all of these things are a result of the fall. However, it's, it's important to note that the Bible says that even in our sin, the image of God is still preserved in us. It's just distorted. We were created as little mirrors that reflect the glory of God. But as one commentator mentioned, he said, the mirror is now bent, you might say. And so a false image is portrayed like a grotesque carnival mirror. And so now when you look at humans, you still see creativity and you see beauty and you see thoughtfulness and you see design and you see purpose there, um, but you also see lying and stealing and murdering and, and, and falseness and, and those things don't show the world what God is like. And so there's a problem. What went wrong with creation? Sin did. Our rebellion did. However, the fall didn't catch God by surprise. He knew before creation that this would happen and he had a purpose for it all. Right after mankind rebelled and fell into sin, God made a promise that he would send a deliverer to save us. And so we see the gospel in Genesis 3.15 right off the bat. But between Genesis 3 and 12, things just seem to get worse. Sin and wickedness um, continues and then God eventually floods the world and starts over with Noah and his family. But even with a fresh restart like that, sin continues. And it's out of this really dark and sinful world that God calls a man named Abram. And that brings us to our next major pit stop. Israel, what was God's plan for them? Right, as Christians today, we, we are living in, in the new covenant age. And, and yet we look at our Old Testament, which is referring to the old covenant. And we see that God is primarily dealing with his unique covenant people, the nation of Israel. And so what was God's plan for them? And, and what is going on today? And we're going to get to this. But it's really important to know what God's plan was for Israel if we're going to understand what God's plan is for the church. So through a series of special covenants, beginning with Abraham, God starts to undo the damage that was caused by the fall. He decides he's going to call a special group of people to himself, um, not because they chose him, but he chose them. Um, out of all the nations of the world, he chose Israel to be his special covenant people. And he's going to use them to bring this Messiah that he just promised in Genesis 3 to the world. And so he calls Israel to himself. And he also has a purpose for Israel that they would display this glory to the world. In a nutshell, God's plan for Israel is that he would reveal his glory to them and then display his glory through them. And this begins again when he calls Abram in Genesis 12. It says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from the very beginning, God calls Israel with a purpose to bless the whole world through them. God promises to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation that he will use to bless the entire world. Abraham becomes the patriarch or the father of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Abraham has Isaac, 
who has Jacob, and Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and he has 12 sons, which is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, I'm giving you a lot of information here, but it's helpful. If you know the story, Abraham's descendants end up as slaves in Egypt until God rescues them in some epic ways, again, revealing his glory to them. He saves his people out of Egypt, and then he starts to reveal more glory to them so that he can display more glory through them. Eventually, he brings them into the promised land and asks them to live in a distinct way. He tells them to be holy because he is holy. He wanted the surrounding nations to see a difference in Israel. He calls them his chosen race, his holy nation, his kingdom of priests, a people for his own possession, because he wants them to show the world what he is like, going back to the Genesis mandate. In fact, if you look at a map, Israel is placed right in the middle of all these pagan nations because he wanted that to be a billboard, a display of his glory to the world around them. He wanted them to look and to see their holiness, to see the way they made blood sacrifices to atone for their sins. He wanted them to see the health of their families, how they took care of the outcasts, how they left crops on the ground for those with less money, and so much more. He wanted them to be his people that would glorify him to the nations around them. But if you know the Old Testament, you know that the history of Israel is a lot of ups and downs, with mostly downs, pretty much right from the beginning with the golden calf. And interestingly enough, my sister sent us a little story today of her son, Gabe, um, who was the other day out peeing in the yard. Um, couldn't think of a more nice way of saying that. And Gabe, little Gabe, has a tendency to pull his pants all the way down um, to go pee. And then she's like, you got to learn how to do it a little better than that, right? Like, I mean, you don't have to just dump them to the ground. There's, there's better ways to do this. And and she yelled at him the other day, and he said, Mom, this is okay, because in the Bible, they danced around naked. And she said, who told you that? And she said, he said, Daddy did. And, and she was like, hey, that was a sin. Like, God was not happy with that, right? But that's a, little, that's a little glimpse of what happened with Israel. From the very beginning, they're worshiping a calf, and they're dancing around naked, and they're like jealous teenagers who look at the world around them and want to be like them. And so it seems like God's plans are crumbling um, in the nation of Israel. We see the failure of the judges, the failure of the prophets, the failure of the priests, the failure of the kings. And we start to see a really clear message. We need a better prophet. We need a better priest. And we need a better king. And as we open our New Testaments, we're greeted with this special announcement to Mary and Joseph. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, God's purposes would not be thwarted. God would fulfill his mission. So what was God's plan for Israel? Well, they were, they were called to display his glory, but they were ultimately used to bring in the Messiah who would accomplish that on their behalf. And this brings us to the next pit stop. Christ, what did he come to do? So far, we've seen Adam fail. We've seen Israel fail. And a clear lesson from this is that sinful humans fall short of the glory of God. We cannot properly image God. We can't be the mirrors we are called to be to reflect him. We're distorted. We're bent because of our sin. We need new hearts. We need help from outside of ourselves. We need a savior. And thankfully, where Adam failed and where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. As the eternal son of God, he perfectly displayed God's glory. Hebrews 1 calls Jesus the heir of all things, 
the creator of the world, the radiance or the splendor of God's glory, and the express image of his person. Colossians 1 calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. Do you remember what he told his disciples? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so if you want to know what God is like, I always say this, you look at Jesus. And what's remarkable about the Gospels is as we walk through that and we see Jesus getting tired, we we see God becoming tired. And and as we see Jesus at a funeral, they're weeping over the the loss of his, his friend and over the brokenness of sin. That is God weeping tears at the funeral of his friends. And and we see how Jesus responds to the outcast and how Jesus heals the sinner. And and that's God in the flesh. And we get to see a picture of God and, and where everybody else failed to display God's glory. Jesus displays it perfectly because he is the eternal son of God. And so Jesus accomplishes the mission that God calls him to do. Jesus does display God's glory. And where Abraham and Adam and everybody else failed, he lived a perfect life, doing everything for the glory of God. One commentator put it this way, as the last Adam and the new Israel, Jesus Christ redeemed the image of God in man. However, that's not all that he did. He didn't just come and say, here's God, and then leave. What did he do? He came And he went to the cross to pay for a people. He purchased a people, his new covenant people. And he now enables that people to display his glory in the world. And so the Old Testament is primarily categorized under the old covenant. That was Israel. And now today we are under the new covenant. And under the new covenant, um, his law is written on our hearts. We receive his spirit. We're transformed. We're We're indwelt by the spirit and enabled to live out what he's called us to live. He brought in this new covenant people called the church, and it's made up of all those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. In the old covenant, it was all of the Israelites. That's how they were marked off. And so there are some there that didn't really believe. They were just there. But now in the new covenant, everybody believes. Only those who believe actually are part of the new covenant people. Which is why as, as, as Christians, as Baptists who believe the Bible, we only baptize those who profess faith in Christ. Only those are welcome into the new covenant people of God. It's made up of those who have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. They are forgiven. They're transformed. They're filled with the Spirit. They're reconciled to God as Father, but they're also reconciled to their brothers and sisters, other Christians, and together they display the glory of God to the world. Remember, from the very beginning, it was a people that God was going to reveal His glory to and display His glory through. And so what did Christ come to do? To display the glory of God and create a people who would do the same. And this brings us to our final pit stop. Some of you are like, oh great, fine, we made it, right? We made the last one. The church, what is our purpose? In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says this, I love this. I will build my church. I don't have to build it. We don't have to build it. God's going to build it. I will build my church in the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is Christ's called out assembly of baptized believers that he builds to display God's glory to the world. This is remarkable. The church is not an event. The church is not a building. The church is a people. And and the church, when we see in the scripture, there's the the universal church that are all believers everywhere. and, and, And that's what he's talking about here. And when he talks about Christ died for the church, But there's also local congregations that locally together, we are called to display God's glory where we are. Where Israel failed to display, the church is called to succeed. 
And notice how Peter, the, the passage we read earlier in our scripture reading, notice how he uses all the titles for Israel when he's talking to the church. He says, but you are a chosen race. Well, Israel was the chosen race, but he's saying you are the chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. These are all titles that were given to Israel. And now together he's, he's bringing Israel and the Gentiles together to create the one new man in Ephesians 2. And he says, now you are this chosen race. You are the royal priesthood. You are the holy nation. You are the people for his own possession. Why? Why would he do this? Why would he give us such grand titles and bring us into his new covenant people? Why? That you may proclaim, display, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is the great purpose of the church, which brings us back to the mission of God, to display his glory in the world. And this, friends, is why the church must be marked by holiness. Holiness. We must be holy because God is holy. When we're not holy, we don't reflect God. This is why the church must be marked by love, because God is love. By unity, because God is one. By mercy and grace, because God is gracious. Where Israel failed, though, the church will succeed. And it's not because of us. It's because we're united to Christ and indwelled by the Spirit. And this is the, the remarkable truth. And as we walk through the New Testament, what we see is the church is called by many names. We're called the people of God. The family of God, the bride of Christ, the new temple, the new creation, the community of saints, and so much more. But for our purposes, as we kind of wrap this section up, I want to focus on the most popular descriptions of the church. Most of you have heard it. We are called the body of Christ. This is, you got to stay with me here. This ties it all together. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. In other words, individual Christians are united to Christ and we become members of his body. And when we unite with other members of Christ's body in a local church, that local assembly becomes God's vehicle to bring Christ to the world. Who displayed the glory of God perfectly? Jesus did. Who are we called? The body of Christ. We are supposed to be the physical representation of Christ in this place. That, that is an amazing, awesome, epic, majestic purpose. In summary, Jesus perfectly displayed the glory of God through his life, death, and resurrection. Then he ascended, and he commissioned his church to then go and do the same, to represent him in the world. And notice that we can't accomplish this as individuals. You can certainly live for God's glory. You can go to work for God's glory. You can raise a family to God's glory, but you're just one member of the body. For the full expression here, we need a church. We need the body to come together. We need the members to come together so that we together display the glory of God in Port Austin and beyond. That is an amazing purpose. Like, it's just incredible. And just as Adam and Eve were called to fill the earth with images of God, what is the church called to do? What did Jesus say before he left? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because as we disciple the nations and plant churches, more pictures and images and displays of God's glory fill the planet. And here's what's remarkable. As we do this, we have the promise from God in Habakkuk 2.14 that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the waters do a pretty good job covering the sea. This is a promise, brothers and sisters, that it's, it's not on us to fulfill this. It's on us to be faithful and to obey. But we're just, like I always say, we're just going to work with Dad. He's going to do it. He promised to do it to fill the earth with his glory. 
God's mission will be accomplished and he calls us to do it with him. So what is God's purpose for the church to be a display of his glory in the world? This is why we put it in our mission statement. We exist to spread a passion for the glory of Jesus in Port Austin and beyond. And so I began this message with a question. What is God doing in the world? And I hope after looking at creation, Israel, Christ, and the church, you can see very clearly that his purpose is to display his glory. And, and what's remarkable, again, is this is the best news in the world, that he would do this, that he would condescend, that he would display himself to us. He, he was perfectly happy and perfectly abundant and joyful, and, and yet he, he enters into our mess and uses us to display his glory. And so because we begin with a question, I also want to close with a question. If God wants to display his glory to the world through his people, where will the people of Huron County look to see God? If we exist to spread a passion for the glory of Jesus, how can we get the people around us in our lives to see the glory of Jesus? How do you see a God who is invisible? Where will people in Port Austin go to see God? And the answer, friends, is that they ought to be able to look at us, the people of God, the body of Christ, the church, and they ought to see the glory of God on display. Remember what Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now we are members of his body. We are today God's vehicle for bringing Christ to the world. And when people look at the church, the individual members coming together as a whole, and, and we're marked by love, and we're marked by unity, and we're marked by holiness and mercy and grace, and, and we're serving and we're loving and we're bearing up with one another and putting up with each other's faults and forgiving one another, the, 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 the world can see that. And they see a glimpse of the glory of God. They see the body of Christ in action. And so, as we think about this, this is a remarkable calling. We are the physical expression of Jesus in Port Austin. We are empowered by the spirit of the risen Christ to be his hands and feet, his body to this community. Mark Dever explains it this way. It is in the church that God's spirit, the spirit of Jesus, rules and reigns. And is made visible in the lives of love that we live. God intends to display his glory through the local church today. As Christians live together in patience, forgiveness, justice, mercy, and love, we reflect God's own character by the character of our congregation's life. And so as we go back to that original question, where will people in Port Austin go to see the invisible God? They ought to be able to look at us and see the glory of God, the body of Christ. We ought to reflect the nature and character of God through this local gathering. And, and that is a remarkable task that will only be accomplished by his spirit. But what a calling we've been given. What, a, what an awesome privilege. And so, so my question for you as we, as we think of this together, are you committed to this purpose? Are you in line with God's mission? Are you living for God's glory in your own life as, as one member of the body? Are you willing to commit to this church, to become a, a member, to, to, to be a part of what we're doing here, to, to show to the world the holiness and the love and the unity um, of God? Are you committed to God's purpose for your life so that together we can be committed to God's purpose for our church? As we close, I just want to summarize it like this. Church, we are a display of God's glory. Do you understand that? That that's the mission of God in the world. And he's called us 
this little ragtag band of disciples in Port Austin to come together, to love one another, to put up with one another, to serve our neighbors, to spread the gospel, to worship Christ. And as people see us just so in awe and, 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 and wonder and beholding our God, they, they say, man, I don't, I don't know if I believe what they believe or agree with what they teach, but man, do they love Jesus. And as we're full and filled with this passion for the glory of Jesus, it, it becomes contagious. And God starts to move by his spirit and work and bring more people into this gathering. And together we get to display the glory of God here in Port Austin and beyond. And so let's work together and reflect the character of God by the character of our congregation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this awesome privilege. This incredible task. And Lord, we admit that we need your help. And so, God, I pray that as we consider this as a church and dwell on this and meditate on this and chew on this, that by your spirit, you enable us to start doing this. I, I believe, God, we already have been in, in many ways, and I'm excited about what, what you've been doing in this church. But, God, I'm so excited to see what you will do. And so, Lord, be with us as we reflect now on the message. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.